You're listening to the Grassroots Church Podcast. We're a Jesus-centered community in Thunder Bay, Ontario. You can learn how to participate more by going to our website at grassroots.church. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Steve. I'm a pastor here at Grassroots, and uh, you are joining us for part two of a two-part series this morning on our recap of uh, the Jesus Collective, which is a uh, network uh, an organization of churches and partners across uh, North America, uh, Europe, pretty much all over the world, actually, um, and it's increasingly growing, uh, that are trying to um, recalibrate our faith and center us back on Jesus, to put it lightly, or to kind of summarize it all up. And so last uh, spring, we started looking at this, um, and we spent about 10 or 11 weeks on it, and then uh, we are deciding now just to kind of do a quick recap. I know that some of you might be like, oh, we're beating a dead horse, we've already covered Jesus Collective, let's move on. Fair, that's fair. But there are four reasons that I wanted to just kind of uh, quickly go over as to why are we revisiting this again. Well, first of all, grassroots aligns with the Jesus Collective theology, and so it's something that we as a community should become familiar with. Um, This Jesus Collective organization helps shape our own community's identity, which is something that grassroots has struggled with historically. Uh, Our community's teaching, what happens from the front, what happens... uh, kind of in any context of teaching here in, 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 at Grassroots Church, uh, to some degree will flow from Jesus Collective as well. There's a lot of resources that we will draw on and point people toward. And then there's a bunch of people in our community these days who weren't here this spring, and so this is for your sake as well. So those are kind of the main reasons we're revisiting this. Um, our next series uh, will be going a little bit into, um, well, I'll talk about that in a bit, but let's not ruin it. Um, so... Last week, we kind of explored what is the Jesus Collective, um, what are their values, uh, what is sort of their vision, what are they doing in the world, and then how does grassroots kind of um, play into all that, and, and how do we, you know, how does that affect us as a community? And, um, and then we started looking at, they have the, what are called sort of five markers or five pillars of a new reformation. And, um, and those were drawn out of this, this sense that there is a need for a recalibration of our faith, uh, a recalibration or recentering, a refocus on what is really at the heart of the Christian faith. Um, and so there, there was a theology circle that was struck up, uh, I think two years ago maybe, and a lot of prayer and discernment and, and work toward developing these sort of five statements. And they became sort of, you could call them like a theological statement for the organization, um, if you want to go that route. And I was looking at them this week, and I actually realized, I'm like, hey, each one of these does have sort of a theological component to it. And it threw me, it reminded me back of my own, my old days studying theology, and I thought this would be kind of a fun little quiz to bring into this community and just see. And now, I'm gonna, so we're going to do like a quick quiz, and uh, I want you to participate. Um, but this doesn't have any bearing on your salvation. So understand that. God does not love you more or less if you don't know any of these terms. All right? This, has no, this is purely fun. There's absolutely no reason we need to do this. It's just to kind of get things going this morning. So... Um, I'm going to throw up some terms, and I want you to shout out, what is this the study of? Ology is sort of the, uh, the root of that, is, or that means the study of. And so when I say theology, what is that the study of? God, and this is a tough one. What do you think Christology is the study of? 
Christ. Soteriology. How many people have heard that word before? Study of salvation. How things are, how we're saved. Uh, pneumatology. What is that the study of? Fire. Pressure. <laughs> yeah, we're dealing with uh, Boyle's Law. Um, Holy Spirit says, John, he gets a point. You are a little bit more in favor with the Lord now. Um, bibliology and hermeneutics. What are we talking about there? Study of the Bible. Yeah, well, basically, what is the Bible? How is it formed? All of that. And then how do we interpret it, right? How do we read this thing? That's its whole field of study. What about this one? Eschatology. End times, yes. Or basically, what happens to us after we die? Uh, what's our final destiny? And then finally, ecclesiology. What is that the study of? Yes, the church. It's the study of the church. Basically, how do we form a theology of ecclesiology? How do we form our uh, understanding of the church, its role, all the things to do with the church? And so... Um, when we looked at these five pillars, last week we looked at the first one, um, I could actually, I was like, oh, I could connect the dots here. I could connect uh, one of these fields of study within the giant realm of theology with each of these statements. God always looks like Jesus. All scripture is properly read through him. So that's an understanding of who is God. That's theology. That's the very definition of theology. And bibliology, how do we read scripture? Well, we read it through a Jesus lens. So we looked at it that last week. Two, to be saved includes belonging to a community under Jesus, called to live the life of the future now. That's soteriology. That's what is the church all about? That's ecclesiology. And the life of the future now, we're starting to embody what that future reality will look like. That's what we're called to do now. That's eschatology. Evil is overcome through the power of suffering love. Well, we'll look at that one in a bit here, but that's essentially Christology. What is the heart and character and nature of Jesus? And how are we to follow, off, uh, follow that as well? Number four, the Holy Spirit empowers us to partner with God's work of reconciling all things. So this is the study of the Holy Spirit. And again, eschatology as well, as we, um, those who are maybe familiar with end times discussions or eschatological conversations often talk about the reconciliation of all things, uh, which is to come at the culmination of the ages. And that is what we're getting at there. And number five, the church is defined by our shared center, not by the lines that we draw, which we'll spend a bit of time on this morning as well. And that, of course, dealing with ecclesiology. So, uh, like I said, last week we looked at the first one, which is a fairly big one, and there are uh, a lot of implications that we, you know, didn't dive into, but that's okay. That's, uh, there's always more opportunity to discover what that can look like as we move forward. This morning we want to look at the next four pillars, and then um, next week, Amy Baker is going to share this uh, with, uh, with you folks this in the morning. But then the week following that, starting October 8th, we will be doing a series on the book of Galatians. I haven't um, even really started to dive into that yet, but I'm assuming it's going to be three, four, or potentially five weeks. Uh, and that will really start to look at what does this uh, number five pillar look like? How do we find a, a shared center? And how do we work out um, unity within that? Or what does unity look like within that? And so um, that should be an exciting series. I invite you to come out for that as well. But this morning, like I said, we want to finish just this sort of recap or this rehashing of uh, the Jesus Collective. And I'm hoping 
that uh, a lot of this stuff will start to make sense, and uh, as a community, we can really embrace this, and uh, not more, more than just embrace it, that we can actually embody some of these principles and actually live them out into the world around us. So number two, to be saved includes belonging to a community under Jesus called to live the life of the future now. So this one, this pillar, this uh, marker, the statement, it begins with an understanding that the gospel is bigger than what many of us have assumed, many of us have grown up believing. Um, We talked about this drift that has taken place uh, historically, uh, away from sort of the centering of uh, our faith, like the faith that that we read about in Acts and and through the uh, first century. There's this kind of continual drift to take away, and then there's this moment in history where the, the Spirit of God just kind of works with His church to kind of recalibrate and refocus. And so we see this happening sort of in, in um, throughout history, the last major drift and the recalibration took place in the Reformation. And now here we are, uh, again, having to recalibrate some of, our, some of the ways that we think about our faith. And... Uh, one of these drifts that, uh, you know, drifts can be defined in a number of ways, but one of these drifts that has happened maybe took place around uh, the Enlightenment. Uh, you might be able to argue a little bit earlier than that, but it, it became, um, there, there is this uh, centering of the self, this elevation of the individual, and um, in many ways you, you might call it a, an idolatry of individualism that, uh, again, was sort of born out of the Enlightenment, and, and there's a whole discussion that could be uh, drawn out of that. But um, the, ascent, the, the essence of it was that you are the center of every story, that success for you is measured, or success is measured by how uh, you achieve your personal goals. Um, and accordingly, despite what we might confess with our lips about the gospel, um, the gospel has become a gospel of privilege, uh, a gospel that says that God is on my side, right? That uh, God is going to protect me. He's going to bless my family. Uh, it, it, some of us, our prayer lives have, are basically an extension of that, a reflection of that. I know this is a struggle for me. When I look at how I pray, I'm often like, God, help me do this. Help, you know, help my kids to see, see here. Pr- protect them. And that's fine. But if that's, the, um, if that's the, the extent of your prayer life, if that's how your communion with God, if, that, if that's the extent of your communion with God, then that says something about your understanding of what God's all about and what he's into. And essentially, the answer to that is he's into just making sure you're safe and secure. And he's got that, for sure. But there's so much more to that. And so rather than a gospel of privilege or a gospel that centers on the individual, that centers on you and centers on me as individuals purely, Jesus invites us into a gospel of participation. Uh, Adam Dyer, who's the executive director of Jesus Collective, he says this. uh, He says, this is the gospel that calls us to recognize the lordship of Jesus and to partner with him. And with his community, the church, to bring about his kingdom. A gospel that calls us to be on God's side. To be the blessing and to be a conduit of God's blessing to the world around us. And uh, if you think about it, this is really what Abraham's blessing at the, the very outset was all about. That through Abraham's seed, he, there would be a blessing not just for his own family. Not just for the people of Israel. Right? But for the entire world. He would be a blessing to all nations. 
And this was the gospel from the outset, but somehow, like I said, along the way, we've, we've sort of become misaligned or we've mis, misunderstood this. We've drifted from this uh, sense that the gospel is meant to be a blessing to all people. Uh, Israel was blessed to be a blessing. They were called to include refugees, to show generosity, to look after the poor, to look after the outsiders, the aliens. That was part of the plan from the very beginning. Uh, far beyond their own sort of ethnic and political boundaries that were established within the nation of Israel. And this calling to be a blessing to all nations from Israel, this is carried forth in the church through you and I today to work with Jesus in welcoming the outsiders, to offer a community to a world that is misguided and ha who has elevated the individual and the self over community, over the world. And so this is the gospel of participation. Um, here's what Dyer notes. He says, Jesus and the writers of the Bible knew that the way of Jesus was beyond any individual. It, it, it has to be beyond any individual. He says, even Jesus lived it out in community. Community with God as Trinity, before time, but also community with his disciples. We are invited into relationship. We live out this kingdom in community. We bring about this kingdom one act of love at a time, a truth that necessitates human connection, interaction, communion, and love. We are fundamentally communal beings. And we have sort of lost sight of that and elevated the individual, elevated the self over all of that. But this human connection, this uh, interaction with one another, it's becoming less and less emphasized in our world. And the cost of the stark individualism that has been left is felt everywhere. Individualism it's not bad in itself, but when we elevate to the place that it is in our society today, in our world today, we can see what it is doing to our world. It is ripping us apart. And so, um, rather than a, a gospel that is focused purely on your salvation to get into heaven, we re-understand salvation as being something much more, much bigger than that. Salvation that is interested in partnering with God in the reconciliation of all things. This is uh, the final word from Dyer. He helps us articulate kind of what we're getting at with this pillar. He says, our faith should increasingly be less about me and more about we. And we are helped in all of this by the Holy Spirit. We're not created to live individualistic lives. We are created for community. And community is at the heart of our gospel and at the heart of what salvation looks like. So that is a conviction that we as a grassroots church want to hold. That community, that working our salvation out in the context of one another, rubbing shoulders, living lives together, um, being the light of the world to the world right, as a community, over the self. That is the second pillar. The third um, pillar is this. Evil is overcome through the power of suffering love. Now, um, the Jesus Collective finds its roots in the radical uh, Anabaptist movement from which um, Mennonites, I'm pointing at my buddy Scott, and Hutterites, 
I don't know, any, any Hutterites in here? <laughs> and Amish all sort of find their, their roots. And one thing that all of these sort of sub-movements of Anabaptism have in common, aside from a ridiculously strong work ethic and an uncanny ability to build a barn in a single day, aside from that, they are all sort of built on uh, a conviction of pacifism. And pacifism is the belief that any violence, including war, is unjustified under any circumstance. That it's never, violence is never a way to find a solution to your problems. Um, and so, I'm not going to get into arguing about pacifism or not, but they would, you know, build their case, uh, starting with the Beatitudes and, and blessed are the peacemakers, they would start there. But they would really emphasize the cross and uh, specifically the whole journey of Jesus to the cross and his submission to um, the power structures of his day. And so Jesus' act of submission to the cross provides a blueprint for Anabaptists um, for how we as followers of the Jesus way are to handle the power of evil in our lives and in our world. The cross sets a blueprint. It gives us an illustration, uh, an idea, a reflection, a picture of what does submitting to the power systems of this world look like. And so let's talk about the cross just for a second, because understanding that will be key to understanding this third um, marker, this third statement. By the time Jesus is marching into Jerusalem, uh, if you recall this very central story to our faith, in his last hours before he goes to this cross, his disciples have arrived at the conclusion at this point that he is, in fact, the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, they have no idea what's going to happen here, but I can guarantee you that the last thing they assume is going to happen is that Jesus, their Messiah, will be hung naked in utter humiliation for all passerbys to mock and ridicule him. That is not on their expectation or their bingo card for what's going to happen next with Jesus. Definitely not. Um, they instead are expecting this Messiah to act in all the ways that the kings before him have acted. By using coercion and violence to overthrow the Roman overlords. So whether it looks like, you know, firing lightning bolts from his eyes or, um, you know, arming all of the disciples with swords and then just saying, okay, now we attack. Uh, whether it's like opening a giant hole in the ground and swallowing all the bad guys up, um, they don't, you know, whatever it is, it's definitely not hanging on a cross, right? That is not what power looks like. And that's not how you defeat power. It's never been how you defeat power historically. But whatever their expectation, they're not expecting Jesus to suffer and submit this humiliating form of execution on a cross. There is no part of their worldview that would lead them to this kind of understanding of the Messiah's actions. That's just not on their, uh, that's just not part of their plan. And yet, as we, you know, hindsight is sort of 2020, as we look back, we can be like, oh, I see how the cross worked. And we also understand that the cross essentially typifies everything about Jesus. It is, uh, it represents all that he is, all that he stood for, all that his followers were called to submit to. So the cross, the way of the cross, uh, Jesus is as the way is the way of the cross, and the way of the cross is the way of salvation. That's really easy to say, and we can ask the question, well, what does that look like in 2023 for us to submit um, to the power authorities of our day? What does it look like for us to take up our cross, right? And 
Um, fortunately, that's the role of the church to help us figure that out. That's the role. That's why we gather in community week after week to sort of sort that out and um, kind of pursue an understanding of what it might look like. What creative ways does that look like for us as Jesus followers in 2023 to submit to um, the powers of our world? What, is, what does it mean to take up our cross? And so we want to figure that out in community. Um, because this is a different kind of power that isn't natural to us. This is, you know, we are soaked, immersed in the world's understanding of power, that might is right, that we can push down to get ahead, right? And, and Jesus says that, yeah, those, those systems, they work for a time, but in the end, they're not going to work. And the Roman Empire is a testament to that. It definitely used power. It definitely used coercion. It definitely used violence to achieve its ends. And it worked for a time. But it's long gone. And Jesus is still around. You and I are here as a testament to that. Amen? And that's the beauty and the power of the way of the cross. The world says, you know, um, quid pro quo, you know, you do this injustice and we respond uh, in, in this kind of form of retribution. You respond, you respond in kind and no one's going to bat an eye to that. These are what the power systems of our world um, are based on. And by contrast, Jesus prohibits his disciples from retaliating. Paul teaches along these same lines. He writes in Romans, bless those who persecute you. And again, these are people who really got persecuted. Like, not just made fun of. Like, these are people whose lives were taken. Like, who were beat within an inch of their lives for their faith, their confession. And Paul's response to them is bless them. Do not curse them. And we are not to be overcome by evil, but we are instead to overcome evil with good. So don't resist evil. Don't try to get retribution. That's not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus looks so different than that. And so this sort of summarizes this third pillar. Don't do evil to those who deserve it. Don't use violence. Don't fight them. Don't, don't kill them. Don't try to achieve your ends through violence. It won't work in the long run. Um, Greg Boyd says this, and I, I think it kind of helps summarize this. He says, Paul succinctly sums up the call of disciples when he writes, Be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. I mean, that's... That's beautiful. God became a human and offered up his life for us while we were yet enemies. And this is the kind of love we who are God's beloved children, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is the same model that you and I are to embrace and are, are, are to, uh, to practice in our lives day to day. We're called and empowered to unconditionally love and sacrifice for all other humans, even when they identify themselves as our enemies. And I'm not saying that's easy. It makes perfect sense in theory. Fair enough. What does it look like in practice? And like I said, that's what we as a church are called to try to figure out and, and, and uh, learn together as a community. So the fourth pillar is this. Uh, the Holy Spirit empowers us to partner in God's work of reconciling all things. And this one in many ways is related to the third pillar, I think, in that it recognizes there are a certain set of assumptions uh, or expectations on what this ushering in of this new kingdom will look like uh, that Jesus kept going on about. And, and you know, um, so the disciples have witnessed his execution, 
uh, right? They're, they are, they've just kind of like experienced that. But then they also witness his resurrection. And so they're kind of filled with hope. They're like, oh, okay, maybe there is something going on here. And so we think, oh, the, uh, the disciples of Jesus finally got it. Um, and they did to some degree, but they still um, missed it a bit. And so at the ascension, with Jesus kind of on his way out to heaven, he's giving his final words to the, his disciples, and he says to them in Acts chapter 1, he says, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And their response to that is, cool. Um, Lord, is this the time when you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Their mindset was still focused on their immediate situation, right? They're still being um, persecuted. They're still being bossed around and pushed down by the Romans. And so they're like, okay, Jesus, you need to meet this need that we have now. Are you, you know, when that Holy Spirit comes, is that the time when we are finally going to, you know, restore Israel to its, final, this, its former glory and we're going to just destroy everyone around us? And instead of Jesus saying, you are an idiot, which he has done many times, he just says, just wait, just wait. And then the next scene we have is Pentecost, which is sort of like the turning point in the church, the beginning of the church, and sort of the turning point uh, for sort of the light bulbs to come on for these disciples. Uh, And so during Pentecost, we see the disciples are waiting in the upper room and the Holy Spirit descends upon them and fire is kind of on top of their heads. And what happens? They are given this ability to start speaking in all sorts of languages. It's a crazy story. It is mind boggling. You need to read it. But they are suddenly given this ability to be fluent in languages they had never heard before. And they... If, if Jesus was interested in restoring the kingdom to Israel, they would have all been speaking Hebrew and going out and speaking Hebrew to all of these people and saying, this is the way to come be part of Israel. But they're not. They're speaking in all the languages. And we read that 3,000 people in that day came to know the Lord. Um, and, and so these languages demonstrate that Jesus was not interested in some political boundary, some ethnic boundary, that this kingdom was not bound to that. It was far beyond that. There is this expectation with the disciples that Jesus is going to come and restore Israel, and the Holy Spirit blows their mind and says, I'm way bigger. This is way bigger than just Israel. This is way bigger than just these political boundaries. I'm I'm not interested in that as much as I'm interested in, in, in bringing in all people to this. Um, theologian or scholar Paul Eddy, who's also a pastor, he wrote this. What happened at Pentecost is better and bigger than the disciples imagined, but it's also different. It's better and bigger because it's about more than Israel or any single nation. Pentecost is about the advent of a kingdom without borders, one that tears down divisive boundaries and gathers people around the peace of Christ. And this is something that the Spirit of God has this pattern of doing. When the Holy Spirit arrived, people's expectations and our assumptions are disrupted, and we are called into something new, something bigger than we imagined. I don't know about you, but I have this tendency to be an atheistic Christian. Um, An atheistic Christian is a term I coined. It means I believe all the right things on an intellectual level. Um, you know, if you were to examine me on my theology, you would find that it's probably, well, maybe not completely perfect, but it's pretty good. 
<laughs> Bill may think otherwise. Um, I have all the right answers. I can give you all the right answers, too, if you question me. I know the language to speak. I know all of that. So I can convince you pretty hard that I'm a solid Jesus-following Christian. But then I live a life that limits risks, that limits boundaries, that resists pushing limits, that stays within my comfort zone, that rarely ventures beyond what I am capable of doing on myself, doing myself, that rarely goes beyond anything in which I am dependent on someone else, something bigger than me to accomplish. And so I worship, and maybe you do too, I'll say we, we worship at the altar of self-sufficiency, right? We worship at the altar of my own capability. And that is a challenge that I'm sure all of us struggle with day to day. How do we trust that the Holy Spirit, this helper that Jesus left with us, is going to work with me, is going to partner with me, to be, or be doing something much bigger than what I can do on my own? That's the work of faith. And that's, I don't have a great answer for you. That, that, doesn't, that doesn't happen overnight. That is a, a work of uh, an allowance of the Spirit's work in our lives, uh, his, you know, throughout our lives, to hopefully move beyond uh, control, self-control or self-sufficiency and, and being able to um, give up control for his sake. And this will feel like a risk because it is a risk. Following Jesus beyond our comfort zone is something that we are called to do regularly. And so the question for us is this. Do we believe that the Spirit is in the business of reconciling all things, which is much bigger than what you and I can do on our own, and which is much bigger than what you and I can do even as a community? It requires us to depend on the Holy Spirit in that. So do we believe his Spirit is in the business of reconciling all things? And if so, are we willing to risk trusting in and following the Spirit in the accomplishment of that work? Is that something that you and I can commit to praying for? Even if we're not feeling that. Even if we're like, yeah, truthfully, I'm an atheist, a Christian too. Is that something that we can commit to praying toward? And I think that's what this... Uh, fourth pillar of Jesus Collective is trying to bring out and say, listen, we want to put our trust in the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, realizing on our own, we're only going to get this far. But if there's a reconciliation of all things that's at work here, and Jesus' work and the Holy Spirit's work is through partnership in achieving that, then you and I have to commit to being part of that, which is hard. And goes beyond theoretical things or proper theology or any of that nonsense, it's, it goes, it, it takes guts, <laughs> frankly. And so then there's the fifth uh, marker of a new reformation, the fifth and final one, which is the church is defined by our shared center, not by the lines we draw. Now, I um, spent an extra week on this back in the spring, and uh, for our next teaching series, like I said, in Galatians, we're going to be diving into this theme a little bit more about unity in the church. Um, so I don't mind if we don't get too deep into this. Uh, but that said, I, I think that of all of the five pillars, 
of everything that Jesus Collective stands for, um, and sort of everything that we as a community are trying to embrace and are moving forward with in regards to our own values, our own convictions, our own beliefs about the church and things like that, I think this one might have the most to say to us and the most relevance to us at this particular moment in history. Division has been a part of the church since the beginning when there was a sharp connect contention between Paul and Barnabas and Acts. It's human to disagree, absolutely. And the reality is there are some very real challenges that are legitimately difficult to kind of determine what side to land on. Fair enough. And especially that's true when it comes to our faith. But there is an epidemic of division and disunity that is plaguing the church, capital C, church, these days. One of the first adjectives that people, when asked about their impression of Christians, is given is division, bickering, fighting. Don't those guys ever get along? That's the impression that the world has when they look in on the church. And can you blame them? They're not wrong. A quick story. Ron and I used to live in uh, the Bahamas. Many of you have known that. And uh, we were part of a denomination, a very conservative denomination down there. And I would go and speak at these different churches on uh, the different keys that surrounded um, the island that we lived on. And uh, the denomination that I would speak at was, there was like a little church on each island. Uh, We'll call them keys because that's what they are. Little keys. And there was one island. um, This is a very conservative denomination, but it was part of a very conservative culture, a larger culture as well, a very churched culture, very religious uh, society. Everyone grew up in the church. Everyone was part of a denomination. It's not like sort of secular Canada. Uh, So you have to kind of expect that. So uh, to give you an idea on this one particular key, uh, there were 300 people in the settlement, and I think there were about six churches literally within an arms, within a rock's, a stone's throw away from each other. Within a 500-meter radius, there were six or seven churches. Um, There was a Catholic church, an Anglican church, uh, an Assemblies of God church. Uh, There was a Brethren church, which is what we were part of, Uh, not Mennonite, Plymouth Brethren. And then there was also probably a house church or two as well, pretty much. And so the Brethren church that we were part of, there'd be like 40 people maybe, 50 people. Uh, It was probably the biggest church in the community. I'm kind of looking around. I'm like, would you assume? And uh, while we were living down there, um, so if you're familiar with Brethren folks, you know that these folks know their Bible. They're lovely people. They're wonderful. Uh, And some church, and each Brethren community has sort of its own sort of emphasis on the things that matter most to them, which is fine. Every church does that as well. Uh, This church Um, it really, really valued head coverings. How many people have been a part of a church with head coverings before? Or know much about that? Okay, some of us have. So head coverings uh, come out of 1 Corinthians 11. There's this passage that they take quite seriously. And head coverings are these sort of doilies that women wore when they walked into the sanctuary, or especially if they're uh, at the front, if they're doing music of any form. Rhonda used to wear a doily um, to kind of be a part of that. 
And this became, this, the issue of do doilies, the issue of head coverings, <laughs> the issue of head coverings became, for many of these folks, a matter of salvation. This was like, very, very serious for these folks. It was because it's right there in the Bible, laid out as clear as possible. Women should wear head coverings. Therefore, women should wear head coverings. That's straight from God's word. And so, and we had many conversations with uh, our friends of ours in our own church community down there who believed that very strongly. And I was like, cool. And Ron and I did not go into those conversations because that was not our world. Um, and so this church, in this particular community, uh, like I said, I had 50 or 60 people. Head coverings were a big thing. And uh, I remember, we weren't there, but this story was told to us. I remember one Sunday morning, uh, one of the elders in the church stood up. And this is an elder who was actually one of the founders of this church some 40 or 50 years earlier. You know, a pillar of this community, a pillar of this fellowship. He stood up and he said, as he realized that the numbers were dwindling in their church, that finances were getting tighter, he said, listen, if we don't change our stance on head coverings, we will be closing our doors in no time. This is a man in his late 80s making that realization, standing up in front of his own community, many of whom were his uh, relatives, um, brothers, sisters, all sorts of, because everyone on these keys are related. So this is a statement he made from a conviction that he held. And you know what? What ensued after that statement is a travesty. That statement caused a division in that church, a separation between family members that lasted for years in which they didn't talk to each other. Still to this day, some family members in, the, in that church community don't talk to each other today because he suggested that we need to change our stance on head coverings. A new church was formed. He passed away. That, that elderly man passed away a couple years later. Um, never seen the reconciliation between those communities. Uh, so the new church was formed. So now I think there's seven or eight churches in that 500 meter radius. And I don't share that story as like, look at those people. Man, oh man, good thing we're not like them. I share that story as a mirror because there is this tendency for all of us to do that. For all of us to get hung up on certain doctrine, on who's invited into this community, who's part of this salvation, what people group do we include in this? You know, what doctrine are we going to plant our flag in so adamantly that it is going to exclude those from us, that they can't be part of this community anymore? In fact, I don't know if I want to say this, but our own community has experienced this. We have found ourselves ideologically and theologically at odds with one another. And many have deemed that so important that they've decided to find community elsewhere that more aligned. And that's fair, and I'm not judging them at all. But it is something we need to grieve if we haven't already. That excuse me, people who once joyfully worshipped side by side in this room, right, who uh, worked toward establishing God's kingdom on Sunday mornings and throughout the week as a family, as a church family, now have said, you know what, we don't find 
or if we find this issue that you guys are tackling so controversial or so important that we have to go elsewhere to worship. And I, people have their reasons, and, and that's, that's fair. But let's just concede that that sucks, right? We have tasted the fruit of disunity and division, and it's bitter. It hurts. It sucks. And so this last pillar is not something that exists in theoretical land, right? This is stuff that is real for this community. Um, And it matters a lot that we address disunity and division. It matters a lot for the church to survive. In fact, um, one thing that we often overlook, and this is kind of interesting, Jesus says this in, in John 17, his prayer for unity. He says, he prays that all of them may be one, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Listen to this. Why? Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Did you catch that? Jesus says that one of the best forms of evangelism, of convincing a world that God loves them, is a church that is unified. If unity is a form of evangelism, is an effective form of evangelism, then we have some work to do. Because let's be frank, this is not something that the church in 2023 has done a very good job of. And so this last pillar of the Jesus Collective seeks to reverse the current narrative that the church is telling the world about unity. But, but how are they doing that? Well, um, you might remember from the spring that metaphor of fences and wells and I think it captures uh, this new approach. And again, I don't think it's a new approach. This, as we lear- we're going to learn in the book of Galatians, is very much a biblical approach. But this idea that in the Australian outback, where farmers' lands are so huge that creating fences is an impractical solution to, to hurting their cattle, to keeping their animals uh, close by. So instead of building fences, what do they do? They drill wells. They drill wells, and then the animals kind of just naturally come to that because they need water, and they want to survive. And uh, I, I think this presents a very different paradigm altogether for us to consider. So rather than asking the questions about whether someone is in or out, do they believe the right thing? Do they believe that? You know, who do they want to include in this? Who do they want to exclude? We establish a center to focus on that will be so appealing, so beautiful, so life-giving that people will just naturally want to be a part of that. And for Christians, for this church community, that center is Jesus. And rather than building lines that separate us from each other, rather than building walls and fences that cause division because we don't hold this belief or we don't hold that conviction or we don't practice this tradition or we don't hold that ritual or because we don't accept that group of people who understand God's, body, God's word this way, or rather than all of that, we put Jesus at the center, and we ask ourselves this question. Is this person moving toward Jesus? Does this person have a posture of submission to his lordship? 
in which they are seeking to become more like Jesus. They are growing in their selfless love, in humility, in pursuit of justice and compassion, in pursuit of grace and in pursuit of truth? Or is this person moving away from the center? Is their posture not Jesus-centered, moving beyond or uh, the opposite direction? And that's, that's it. That's our criteria. And that's going to take work to figure that out and how do we live that and you know, what does that look like? And again, this is admittedly way easier in theory than in practice. Fair enough. I'm not naive about that. Um, but this is why we are going to be dedicating a bit more time as a community exploring this theme in the weeks and months and years to come. An author, Mark Baker, proposed sort of three, proposed a new, this paradigm based on a diagram. I'm going to just share them with you really quick just so we understand them. Uh, so he says this, most of us are grown up in, in this kind of world where this is called a bounded set, right? This is where you're a head covering person, I'm a non-head covering person. We draw this line in the sand and we're very clear where we stand. And what does this do? This does what we have today, division, um, splintering, uh, new church communities. We have 48,000 denominations. I don't know if you knew that, but let that stat sit with you. 500 years after the Reformation, we are at 48,000 official denominations who said, these lines are so important. We've got it, the truth figured out right here. We, we are here, and everyone else is therefore wrong or not as right as us. So that's bounded set, and we say, oh, that's really problematic. The answer to that is, let's just erase the boundaries and say, Convictions, values, traditions, rituals, pfft, none of that matters. All that matters is just we get along and everyone has a really fun time together. Everyone's nice. And to be fair, that's what the world seeks to do. That's their form of unity, isn't it? Right? Let's just erase boundaries that separate us. But that has its own set of problems. Right? The, the, I don't even know where to go, where to begin with that. There's all sorts of challenges with that. Let's not go into that in the interest of time. And then finally... What Mark Baker proposes and what we as a church are going to try to adapt and adopt as we uh, move forward in this conversation is a centered set approach, which again puts Jesus at the center, and then we are either moving toward Jesus and toward his character, toward his heart, or we're moving away from it. That's it. And so, um, yeah. That is where we want to end this morning. Um, and this is the model of unity that our leadership at Grassroots Church is praying our community will embody. Some, of, some people call this a third-way approach. But it's more than simply this theoretical paradigm that we just point to and say, yeah, let's just do that. It is something that we will uh, work on learning what it looks like in practice that as we follow Jesus, we will continue to practice in the following of the way, convinced, as Jesus said, that the world will actually be drawn to God's love when they see a unified community of Jesus' followers. Amen? So that's it, friends. That's, those are the five pillars, and I hope you're excited about embodying and embracing those as a church community. At the end of the day, whether uh, Jesus Collective even exists or not, Grassroots Church wants to have Jesus as the center of our theology, as the center of our church, our relationships, and everything else. And so this morning, as a simple confession of our faith, uh, Jesus is 
at our center, we gather around the bread and a cup again. And so this morning as we um, come up, as I invite you up in a second here, uh, together with loved ones, together with strangers, we are unified in our submission to the one who calls us out of our brokenness toward healing and toward restoration with a God who is selfless, who shows us what sacrificial love looks like. Once again, we are invited to partake in this beautiful mess together. Let all sinners and saints, let all broken and healed, join together in remembering our Lord's death and resurrection. This morning, you are welcome to the table.